the the productivity gains that I believe are now possible, not just AI, but some of the other technologies that are converging with it, um, really I, I think start to elevate um, global productivity in ways that we just haven't seen in, in a couple decades. Uh, and so first and foremost, in, in any industry, in the context of IT services, I mean, we just think about knowledge work, which people believe for years would never really uh, see automation addressing. Uh, the fact that knowledge work can improve um, and be supported by artificial intelligence and other methods in the context of consulting and IT services clearly will have an impact on the industry and on our customers. Hi, wherever you're listening to this, I hope you're doing well. Welcome to Tech Conversations, where we bring you insights from tech entrepreneurs, CXOs, and investors. I am Hari Arakali, and in this episode, Frank Diana principal futurist at Tata Consultancy Services, talks about how a lot of his work in figuring out where we are headed is about learning from history. I spoke with Frank last week, a few days ahead of the company's New York Marathon, during which TCS and Dassault Systems would showcase their digital twin technologies by modeling the heart of a noted elite athlete, Des Linden. Diana spoke about why interest in such technologies has surged, and how current advances, including AI, will bring unprecedented productivity gains in the near future. Frank, welcome to this podcast. Thank you for making time for this. Can you start by giving us a brief introduction uh, to what you do as a futurist at uh, TCS? And we'll go from there. Well, sure. First, thanks for having me. Uh, and I am um, the principal futurist here at TCS with a small team of other futurists and storytellers, which is an important part of the job. Uh, a futurist really looks out and tries to understand various scenarios that may be emerging in that future. And interestingly, at least as far as my perspective on things, I also spend an awful lot of time on the past. I do believe that history uh, provides a lot of great instruction in terms of what where things may go. So it's, it's a macro level view of the world. It spans domains like geopolitics, society, economics, environment, science, technology, obviously, but it's really a broad, broad perspective on where things may go. What's your definition of a futurist? What does the work involve? So at the highest level, uh, the work involves looking at various signals uh, through various different sources, and in, in, in my case, especially across these various domains. So a very complex, challenging uh, effort in trying to understand what these signals might mean to, to the future. So helping to understand possible paths, uh, the scenarios that may emerge, what, what they mean to not just leaders, but society in general. Um, and it involves uh, foresight. So there's a lot of methods that foresight professionals use to try to make some sense out of the signals that are emerging. Um, and through that foresight, then enable some level of action um, that helps us understand and, and uh, leverage that future in positive ways. And how did you come to be a futurist yourself? What got you interested in this line of work? So it's interesting. I get that question a lot. Um, and some people become futurists through education and training, through uh, really a, a desire to, to do that kind of work. 
um, and some folks actually study it, uh, historians, anthropologists, um, social scientists, there's a number of different domains, politicians, uh, political science, that you might explore as a way to, to become a futurist. And others kind of stumble on it, which is how I really landed on on the role. I, I've, you know, I've had leadership roles for a number of years now, and it's always been sort of forward-looking in its uh, context. Um, and in my years here at TCS, um, it really has been about understanding where things are going. And it was the market itself that started calling me a futurist. So in all honesty, it's not like I, I, you know, I pursued it or labeled myself a futurist. The, the market did, and it sounded good to me. I'm also curious about how, I mean, when you're looking at something sort of um, as uh, unpredictable and in a way it's almost impossible to figure out what the future might bring us. I mean, historically, we know that most estimates about most things go wrong and sometimes go wrong spectacularly. And of course, we cannot, we definitely cannot, you know, predict black swans like the COVID pandemic in recent memory. Uh, so I, I said all these things uh, because I'm curious about how you would bring some kind of focus, you know, from the point of view of uh, working at TCS in terms of being a futurist as relevant to TCS's context. Uh, so first, uh, to your point, I, I've never been a believer in prediction, um, especially in times that are so uncertain and complex as, as this current era. Um, and so instead of thinking in the context of prediction, I like to think about it in terms of rehearsal. So rehearsing the future versus predicting the future. So in, in, in TCS's world, in discussing um, matters of the future with our, our customers, sea levels, boards, uh, etc. It's really that notion of rehearsal that we, we explore. So, if there's a, a leader out there looking to understand a specific domain or path, then you know how do we help rehearse that path in ways that that are meaningful? Again, no no prediction, but uh, and a great example as you might imagine in an age where we live longer lives. Um, there's an open question around what retirement is in the future. So. So envision an exercise of rehearsing what retirement in the future might look like and what does that mean should it go in, in those, those various paths. And so that's how I think about it. It's really rehearsal versus prediction. And um, given the uncertainties, it's a, a bigger focus today than it has been a long time. You know, lots of questions around this future. Okay. In doing this, this uh, exercise uh, kind of on a continual basis, I would imagine, and when you look at the interplay of technology, uh, business, and society. Uh, can you walk us through some of the biggest trends that you anticipate, say, in the next decade, and and maybe point us to some of the early signs of these trends that you're seeing today? Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's such a tough uh, question to answer, given how much is going on in, in, in all those domains. So when, when I do an exercise like this, we, we look at the building blocks that exist or are emerging across these domains what, because geopolitically obviously things are changing societally you know things are changing aggressively as gen z and millennials enter stages of decision making in their lives so you have to look at trends across those domains and so what we look at is the trends themselves and how they're converging in ways that might shape a given a given domain so for example clearly um since the uh, launch of chat gpt ai has become a popular conversation no matter where you go. So one of the biggest building blocks, ultimately a general purpose technology, artificial intelligence, is a key driver of change in the next decade. Um, but then you have to marry that with 
other things that are uh, also forming. So, example, virtual reality has not gone anywhere, right? It's moving aggressively as we expected, even though metaverse as a buzzword may have diminished in popularity. And so how does AI potentially converge with virtual reality? And I, I give scenarios where artificial intelligence has been used to, to simulate a, a lost relative, and virtual reality has been applied to actually see that relative um, in a, such a, a fascinating form because AI got you there. And then haptic gloves are used to actually feel that, that, that relative. It, it's just fascinating to watch these things converge. Um, and so those are good examples of building blocks that converge and trends that are forming that actually change and alter how we think about society, right? Imagine a world where you could reconnect with a lost loved one if you wanted to. What, what does that mean to us as a society? And then other big trends um, that we're seeing signals, uh, but m maybe they're in the form that AI was pre-ChatGPT, and that those are synthetic biology, which uh, really uh, is going to be massively impactful. Another another uh, general purpose technology that really alters what it means to live as humans on this planet. And then quantum computing, which, you know, there's debates as to, you know, what the timeline for quantum computing looks like, but there's no debate in terms of its impact if and when it does become real. So you take those three, AI, synthetic biology, and, and quantum computing, and collectively, all three of them general purpose technologies, the, the world in the next 10 to 15 years could look very different. Can you give us a couple of examples of how learning or studying these trends and, and as you said, sort of looking at the tea leaves of the early signals translates to uh, preparation at TCS as a company in terms of anticipating what your customers might ask of you in the coming quarters and years. And I know that in generative AI, certainly now you're training tens of thousands of people uh, and more recently, you've been talking about uh, digital twins, although, I mean, the concept and the tech has existed for quite a while, but now, more recently, it looks like it's got the imagination of people. So just give us a couple of examples. Yeah, so so we do have, uh, as you might imagine, research labs around the world whose uh, you know sole, sole task is to look out and understand where things are heading and how we might leverage that, that movement uh, to, to benefit our customers. So that's a lot of activity in our research labs. In my role um, as a futurist, uh, we inform some of what those labs focus on, given what we're seeing in those signals. Um, but it's really all about uh, really two, two focuses, as you probably are aware from a Tata perspective, that focus on philanthropy and and benefiting society continues to be a driving force. And so out of our labs, what are the things that we can do that help society at some level? And then also, how do we help our customers uh, through that analysis and leveraging of, of these signals? So it's a, it's a two-pronged approach. It's really the foresight um, that's actually today informed by, by la large language models. In, in my work, we use large language models on the front end to actually help us maybe see signals that we're missing. Um, and then through that signal analysis, where does that drive our research and the work our labs do? And that culminates in hopefully some societal good and, and helping our customers. Can you dive into this a little bit more? Give us one or two specific examples. Uh, and you said you look at the past as well quite a bit yeah. um, of, of interesting examples where TCS was already preparing itself with uh, where you thought the technology is headed and how that might have helped you. Yeah. Okay. So, so uh, I'll go back to, you mentioned digital twins, which really is a key focal point for us today. And as we saw 
as you said, rightfully said, digital twins have been around a while. It's really the application of these digital twins and the maturity of some of the underlying technologies that have taken us to a place where we're going to apply digital twins in many, many different contexts, right? So simplistically, obviously, the industrial setting around digital twins and predictive maintenance, those are the things we've been doing for years. But now you start to see its application in the context of energy efficiency as the energy transition starts to accelerate and the need for efficiency grows. You know, how do you use digital twins to improve the efficiency within a building um, or a city in, you know, at the macro level? And is its application seeing where digital twins are heading and applying it to something that benefits business and society? And, and a really big one that I'm uh, really hopeful for is the implications of digital twins in the health and wellness context. So um, if you might have seen, you know, we're working on a, a digital heart with the SALT systems and the Living Heart Project, and it's that digital heart that at the onset we apply in, in the marathon and running context, being big sponsors of the marathons, and helping from a performance and recovery perspective. But long term, um, how, do, uh, how does a digital heart help in health and wellness? How does it help a, a, a doctor simulate uh, a disease and how a drug may impact that disease or, or a number of different things that we can see coming. So a really good example of seeing the signal and then jumping in front to apply that signal in a context. And there's so many different examples that digital twins are being applied to today. In the marathon context, and, and I know that uh, you're also doing something special by way of uh, creating a digital twin of uh, one of the elite athletes in your next marathon and so I'm, I was you know while preparing for this conversation as some of the thoughts that were going on in my head were like uh, is it possible today uh, as this runner is running uh, to take uh, to use sensors and to take data from those sensors and feed it into your digital twin simulation and see what happens in the simulated model and as a result can you then give the athlete who's running real-time recommendations like you know now's the best time to speed up or maybe you want to rest for the next couple of kilometers are these the kinds of things that are possible that you're going to try or just walk us through what you're planning with this experiment so so very well said and a really good example of how the underlying building blocks are converging to enable a scenario like that right so we already had wearables and and sensors, as you said, that could provide a level of data that could be manifest itself today through an app that uh, starts to inform a runner. You could simulate a, a, a course and understand uh, you know, the strategies one might use in training for that course. But then in real time, as you're running, to your point, you know, wind conditions or, or something changes that, that drives a, a change in strategy. And so in the future, now envision the convergence of virtual reality, or maybe through your glasses, you're being instructed to do something different in that run because of the data and that simulation telling you that this is a better strategy. So yes, all those things, um, you know, slowly, incrementally are leading to a scenario where uh, you improve performance through, through those kinds of things during training, um, and then you improve performance real time in the event itself. And if I could just add to that, if you think about a digital heart, um, and its application while training, you know, sometimes there are underlying health conditions that unfortunately in the, in the past have led to uh, had death during a run. If you had a digital heart that was with you while you were training and that underlying condition was, was, was found, 
imagine the implications to the, the saving of lives uh, in the future. So all of these things we believe are possibilities and incrementally we're moving in that direction. And in this particular case itself, I'm sorry, I forgot the name of the athlete, but in this particular uh, case, what are some of the things that you're trying? Uh, so Des Linden is the name of the athlete. And in our partnership with the Zalt Systems and the Living Heart Project, um, we're working aggressively towards uh, towards that heart scenario. Now, we'll showcase, we'll showcase that digital heart um, in the Expo Center at the uh, New York City Marathon. Um, I'm not close enough to that ex expo to tell you exactly what we're showcasing there, so I really just can't answer that question in detail. But just so you're aware, that's the plan, is um, during the New York City Marathon, our work with Des Linden and Dassault Systems, we're going we're gonna to show something in an exposition at the, before the event. Okay. Uh, so I want to take you back to what you mentioned earlier in passing about how the longer-term implications for healthcare could be very big with the applications of uh, digital twins. But before that, can you briefly talk about what are some of the factors that are coming together today because of which the whole idea of uh, digital twins has become a very exciting field? Uh, yes, yeah, so, so underlying technologies, obviously like artificial intelligence and its ability to leverage all that data in, in simulations, um, which really manifest themselves through a digital twin. So if we think about urban planning as just one example, all the data that flows from a city, which uh, then can be analyzed using algorithms and AI techniques, uh, then manifest themselves through a digital twin that help us think about you know, aspects of that urban planning, transportation, other, other things. So the, the maturity of AI, the capacity of, um, of sensors to provide us data from all kinds of different sources within that city, uh, our ability to actually manage and manipulate that data, um, and then other other pieces. So the building blocks of Internet of Things, of of, of big data and our capacity to deal with data, and and ultimately five G and and virtual reality and all the things that could combine in ways that create scenarios for how we apply that digital twin. Uh, I, you know that one example I gave of of recreating a lost loved one is just one good example of how they come together in the context of virtual reality and in the context of education, for example. Um, if uh, a, a surgeon can operate on a patient virtually um, and, and practice without having to worry about a cadaver or, or risk a surgery with a patient, those are all scenarios emerging because these things are converging. When we talk about AI today, um, I mean, on the one hand, it's of course very exciting that there are so many uh, possibilities that, that are coming up. Uh, even sort of uh, the layperson can take advantage of things like ChatGPT and many things have become easier, more productive and so on. On the, on the other hand, the pace at which all of this is changing is kind of made it a very real, uh, you know, uh, existential issue, if you will. I mean, it's, there's no doubt anymore that it's going to change everybody's life irrevocably. Um, so when you look at it from your lens, what comes to your mind uh, in terms of where we are headed with all of this, how we are developing it, how we are beginning to use it. So I'll bring back the notion of history um, because there is historical precedent uh, for these kinds of things. Where Whenever we have a general purpose technology like artificial intelligence, and, and it, it clearly is and will be, um, then there are always two paths that have to be managed. The constructive path that benefits society and the potentially destructive paths that, that impact society. I mean, the internet, for example, has 
as taking those two paths. Well, we, we could just look at social media today, for example, as an example of some destructive things that misinformation, disinformation that it has led to. Um, in the context of electricity, even electricity, which was the biggest general purpose technology outside of fire, uh, you know, buildings burn down as a result of, uh, right? And so in the AI context, clearly there are those dual paths. Um, and so it is incumbent upon society, as it always is, to manage those paths. So I'm a big believer that the advancement of human development, that artificial intelligence can enable through innovations, like addressing climate change, like attacking some of the chronic diseases that we have struggled with for years, um, is too valuable not to, to pursue. Uh, and so this notion of slowing down this path of technology, to me, it, 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 it has a bad side effect. On the other hand, we do need the kinds of, of thoughtful approaches to how to make sure that the destructive side of that path is those risks are mitigated at some level, right? So I'm a, I'm a positive thinker in the context of what it will do for society, but also practical in the thinking that it's always gone in both directions. It's, it's you know, not credible for me to think that it won't here as well. And when you look at the IT services industry or tech services industry in general, uh, companies like TCS and its peers, what might be some of the biggest changes that are happening? And you get to see this uh, from the inside as well as through your perspective of looking at what's coming in the future. So what are some of the biggest things that you are seeing in terms of how this industry is changing in the context of the rise of AI? Yeah. So... The, the productivity gains that I believe are now possible, not just AI, but some of the other technologies that are converging with it, um, really, I, I think, start to elevate um, global productivity in ways that we just haven't seen in, in a couple decades. Uh, and so first and foremost, in, in any industry, uh, I think productivity uh, gains and, and therefore economic prosperity that follows is, is very possible and likely. In the context of IT services, I mean, we just think about knowledge work, which people believe for years would never really uh, see automation addressing. Uh, the fact that knowledge work can improve um, and be supported by artificial intelligence and other methods in the context of consulting and IT services clearly will have an impact on the industry and on our customers as more and more of these techniques are utilized to, to not just... So I'll give you an example. Um, I mentioned... My my work in Foresight is front-ended by a large language model. So much of the research and analysis that we would have to spend time on has been we, now it's shortcutted because we, we, we eliminated some cycles as a result. Now apply that across a number of different you know scenarios in the IT space, and you can clearly start to see where content development, where documentation, where even code coding and testing, right, is in the, in the purview of, of these new uh, approaches. So clearly, you know, change ahead. Uh, I don't believe IT services and consulting is immune from the kind of, of changes that we see coming. Uh, and there's a number of good examples, you know, knowledge work and, and, and develop software development and testing. What are the implications of this big jump in productivity? Uh, and can you give us a sense of how much you expect productivity to increase? Yeah, well, I mentioned I'm not in the business of predictions, so I really won't go into, uh, you know, estimates there. Um, but I do believe, you know, there's been this talk around the um, digital was showing up everywhere, but in the productivity numbers, right? The, the paradox that existed since uh, digital exploded. And it really does mimic electricity. So if we think about, if, and this is a good way to answer the question, if we think about history again, 
Electricity took 40 years to play out. And its biggest impact happened, you know, on the back end of that evolution, where the factories were completely reimagined when electricity was, uh, when you, every motor, every uh, machine had a motor, etc. Uh, and so if you envision the convergence of these building blocks, like AI, and the likelihood of it reimagining any domain, pick a domain, they're all going to be reimagined um, and simplified and some of the complexity eliminated from those domains, then you can see a, a path to significant productivity gains in the future. And again, I can't quantify that, um, but it's just following a path that we've seen happen before. Um, and so I do expect this time um, that we'll see that evolution won't take 40 years. Um, again, not going to predict how long it takes, but I do expect those productivity gains to happen much sooner than they did in the days of electricity. You know, when I asked you about uh, the implications of the increase in productivity, in my mind, I was thinking about how in the past, over the last, uh, I don't know, 20, 30 years, much of the growth of the IT industry was on the back of building applications and maintaining them and so on. Uh, basically replacing large legacy systems and, you know, the whole modernization of uh, very large customers, IT systems. But now we are on the cusp of uh, a lot of, uh, you know, the, the low-code paradigm, the no-code uh, model and so on. And then uh, suddenly we also have this uh, whole uh, generative AI-driven capability where you don't even need humans to code a lot of things. So if you put all of these together... Uh, I'm just curious about how you're looking at how the whole outsourcing model would change. Yeah, so I I won't speak to the, to the outsourcing model or change. Um, uh, I'll leave that to others to to address. But I but I will I will comment on your on your notion of the combination of these things: low code, no code, AI's capability and capacity clearly changes um, fundamentally the the business of software development. And testing, right? And acknowledged and something that we're focused on in terms of, you know, how do we add value in that context to our customers as these things evolve, right? So clearly change ahead, um, no predictions or, uh, or at least at this point, what I, I, I think might happen to outsourcing and offshoring. Um, but, but that said, clearly envisioning significant change. And outside of the world of software, uh, although software, of course, has a, a large impact on the evolution of new energy models. And you uh, alluded to this just a little while ago about how we are also now at a point where we are completely reimagining or at least attempting to reimagine uh, our energy uh, consumption, uh, production and so on, uh, you know, trying to get away from the fossil fuel burning model to sustainable ways and uh, so on. Um, so again, in the brick and mortar world, what might be the equivalent of uh, generative AI. Uh, I mean, I have come across instances of, for example, materials that can kind of heal themselves. I mean, I know that it's not exactly comparable. Uh, I'm just sort of thinking aloud. Yeah, yeah. So, so the phenomena and a great example of how we're just moving from one era to another. Um, you know, we, we've lived in a world of extraction um, for many, many decades, uh, centuries. Where, where we extract resources. Uh, we're moving aggressively toward a world of creation where our energy can be created, as we know, from renewable sources. Our foods can be created in labs uh, through precision fermentation and other means. And obviously, um, 
material sciences, as you referenced, is aggressively moving to to create some breakthroughs that I, I envision helps a number across a number of domains. So the materials sciences, in terms of you know coming up with new materials that uh, that avoid the need to extract, that make things more viable. So you think about the reduction in footprints of of, of solar panels. Some breakthroughs I, I saw just yesterday at MIT, which are fascinating, where you can pretty much solar enable anything. Um, those kinds of breakthroughs at the tangible material level, uh, I think, uh, are game changers as far as accelerants um, to the process, uh, price point reductions that make some of these these great innovations affordable to the masses, which is a critical point um, in terms of our world today and some of the inequality that exists in our world today. You know, making these innovations available to the masses is is really important, um, and so it's a really good question around the tangible material side of things and. Clearly, I see a lot of a lot of change coming there as well. And and as a student of history, would you see yourself as an optimist in terms of humanity's ability to save itself? <laughs> I always get this question: optimist or pessimist, right? And so, uh, most of me is uh, is an optimist because I can clearly see in that I believe where we're heading and these great innovations will give us the capacity to solve some challenges that have been with us as a society for as long as we've been on this planet. Um, if there's a pessimist in me, it's, it's really that question of the, not the global capacity to solve these problems, like climate change. It's the global will, because I believe that these are, they are global challenges. These are not nation-based challenges or organization-based challenges. These are global challenges. And much like you know, post-World War II, when the world came together to ensure that didn't happen again and, and solved other big challenges through institutions and mechanisms that managed us forward, and we still benefit from them today, um, does the global will exist to do that again? And so if there's a pessimist in me, it's really signals that I'm seeing that would answer that question in the negative, right, with the hope that we, uh, we, we, see it, uh, we see the issues enough and clearly enough that we start to manage them. Any point? Any, yeah, any points that you would like to highlight that I've not asked you about? So, um, a couple. One history, um, really surprisingly, maybe not so surprisingly, has been a series of of cycles, and we've seen broad patterns that have existed through the years. That we're we're seeing some of those patterns again. And so, you know, one of the things that I, I'm constantly talking about is learning from history and allowing the historical signals to guide us um, at some level. But that requires a very critical quote from Alvin Toffler. He said that the illiterate of the 21st century won't be those that can't read or write. It'll be those that can't learn, relearn, and importantly, unlearn. And so one of the critical pieces of advice that I would give any community or audience is it's not within our capacity to unlearn. It's unfortunately not one of those great human traits um, but it is critically needed. So in a world that's looking very different than the past, uh, we have to allow ourselves to think differently um, and just let go of some of our belief systems and our intuitions because what, re- what we really need to, to address the problems of the future, are the learnings live somewhere in the past. And so connecting those two worlds is really critical. I mean, just to extend this point of I know uh, advice uh, for others from your experience, and I know that uh, even with very successful people, uh, their career can often be a series of uh, good and bad accidents. Uh, in ad- in addition to whatever they did deliberately in terms of preparation, keeping that in mind, for a young person who is very keen on 
doing something in terms of learning about what might come in the future and how to prepare and and making a sort of career out of that how would you have them prepare so so a couple um key characteristical traits that they should really hone in on and nurture would be critical thinking uh and it's it's hard sometimes cuz critical thinking pushes us to look at at things we see with a critical eye right not accept everything that all the information that comes our way so critical thinking systems thinking which is that capacity to see the broader picture and and connect the dots at a much broader level to under to see those patterns and and where things might go those those are skills that need to be nurtured so not just really the being abreast of what's going on in the world reading and and constantly you know educating ourselves but it's those those you know characteristics and traits that make a, a, for a successful futurist that have to be nurtured and hopefully our education system as it evolves spends more time uh, in early stages of of our ch- children's lives nurturing those kinds of skills and some of the softer creative and innovation skills that that are critical but those are the kinds of things that I think are important. Okay Frank a very enjoyable conversation for me thank you again for making time for this and definitely hope to keep the conversation going and happy halloween to you <laughs> well thanks for that and really appreciate that you having me on the show that's it for this conversation i hope you found it interesting you can find all our podcasts at forbesindia.com and on your favorite podcast app i'm hariarkli thank you for listening